you really have to find value add properties. You have to have properties that have some distress on it, whether it's physical distress or what I would call financial distress um, and, and have a way to fix it. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Today, I have Drew Niffin. Drew, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Todd? I am fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. A little bit about Drew. He has a corporate finance and real estate investing career that spans a decade after finishing graduate school. Drew was an investment banker, providing valuation analysis and prepping small companies for refinance or sale events. From there, Drew worked at a Fortune 500 company in the Twin Cities, right by me, where he negotiated and implemented joint ventures in Asia, Central America, South America. Drew began his full-time real estate investing career in 2008, focusing on acquiring cash-flowing properties that maintain value through the economic cycle. In addition to being an investor, Drew has been featured on multiple podcasts and also this one, of course, and also coaches aspiring uh, multifamily investors. Today, Drew controls 1,500 units across the U.S. with a collective valuation in excess of $85 million. And uh, you're in Seattle as well right now, no longer in Minnesota, which, uh, you know, we're, we're sad about that, but Seattle's happy to have you. It's, uh, it's, it's, I moved about five years ago, but it's been a good transition. I did enjoy my time in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Although in January and February, sometimes you want to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Drew, I got a question for you right off the bat. You and your bio, you said you focus on acquiring cash flowing properties that maintain value through the economic cycle. Yeah. Explain that to me. What do you do? What are you looking for in properties and how do you think they're going to maintain through the economic cycle? Well, okay, so it's a, it's a great question. No one's actually ever asked me that question before, and I think it's the most meaningful sentence in that bio. So I think it's cool that you picked up on that. When you are doing the opposite, when you're, when you're buying properties for just uh, appreciation based upon economic growth, you are, you're taking a risk, in my opinion, and you're letting the control of the outcome uh, be beyond, beyond you. Right. So what I, here's a good example of this. Let's say you buy a property for a million dollars. And even after paying the mortgage every month, it kicks off $5,000 of cash into your pocket. Right. And it does that. And it's well-maintained, has a good reputation in the neighborhood. And so, um, then let's say there's an economic downturn and cap rates go up. And all of a sudden, on, on paper, your property is only worth $600,000, right? And you're like, oh, shoot, I've, I put a quote, lost $400,000. But meanwhile, the place is full. The tenants are being care of. You're responding to work orders quickly. It's a quiet, safe, clean place for tenants to live. And every month, it's putting $5,000 in your pocket. So that, quote, unquote, loss of $400,000 is a mirage. It's not real. And it can withstand the economic cycles because it's cash flowing. Now, let's say in the alternative world, you buy a million dollar property, but it doesn't cash flow. It's, it's rents aren't sufficient, but you believe that rents are going to go up because it's in 
Manhattan or it's in Los Angeles or something like that, right? And, and lo and behold, the same recession comes along and it, it barely pays its mortgage. Or maybe every once in a while when there's large work orders, you got to write a check into the property, right? But you're like, oh, in a couple of years, it's going to double in value because it's in, its, it's in this growing market, but it's not cash flowing. So you're writing $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 checks into the property every month. And then on paper, it's gone from a million dollars of value down to 600,000 because the cap rates have moved against you. Now, what's your conviction about writing that one $5,000 check into the property to cover the mortgage every month when on paper you've lost $400,000? It's really hard to do. So that's, that's the difference between those two models. And it's why I believe in trying to buy cash flowing properties because it gives you the confidence that even when the value of the property goes up and down, and it, it basically will as markets get hot and cold, it's putting money in your pocket. And over time, the market will get rational and the property will go back up to worth a million dollars or more as you're pushing the cash flow of the property. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things on that. I mean, I can remember when I first started buying it, it was right during the recession. And my properties actually, I, I would buy them. And, and a year later, they were worth less than what, you know, what they mm-hmm. were when I first bought them. But mm-hmm. I didn't care because of the cash flow. Yep. And I still remember people saying back in, you know, 2009, 2010, I remember sitting in a class, I was getting my real estate license uh, because I was buying so many houses, I, I needed my license. Um, and the, the instructor said something about houses, eventually every single house in America will be worth a million dollars. And, you know, that's very forward thinking because that might be a long, long time from now, but it probably will be, potentially will be true eventually. Yeah. Um, and these people behind me were laughing and they said house values will never go back up to where they were in 2006. And a lot of people thought that. And then what you just said, where eventually your property will catch up. We've seen that happen. Yep. We just saw the worst real estate, you know, recession probably potentially ever, if not, you know, the great depression maybe, but um, and, but now we see that, that values have exceeded previous values. So, so it eventually goes up and the cash flow is huge. If you can withstand that, that's what's huge. I heard, I heard a lot of people that lost a lot of money that said I had a $50 million net worth back in you know, 2006 yep. and then they lost everything. Well, that $50 million net worth is just on paper. It's not paying the bills. Right. And right. So every cash flow. Every single, now homes are a funny thing, homes that you live in because they're not cash flowing assets, right? Yeah. So they, they sort of behave a little bit differently. But for rental properties, in the end, their valuation is always essentially a multiple of the cash flow. Yeah. So if you're producing the cash flow in the long term, it will get valued accordingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you just have to believe that and stick it out when it's tough, which is what you did. Yeah. Yeah, no, good stuff. I really appreciate you explaining that. I think that's really really important for our listeners to be thinking about that right now, especially in today's market. Um, I'm assuming you're still looking at just cash flow and making sure you can force that appreciation through raising cash flow. Is that one of your main strategies or what, what's the focus today? Yeah. You know, you know, um, in back in 2011 and 12, you could just buy properties that were cash flowing from day one, kind of like low hanging fruit. It was, shooting fish from a barrel 
and the word's gotten out. That's a pretty good strategy. And those deals, those properties are harder to find. Um, so, you know, I have a property down in little Canada, Minnesota that, um, cash flows, it's a single family home, but it cash flows like a thousand dollars a month. Now, if I sold it today, then the buyer couldn't cash flow at a thousand dollars a month because the price has gone up so much, but it's yeah. just, it, because I bought it at that time and I bought it with a little bit of distress on it. So your question is nowadays, what are you looking for? And the answer is you really have to find value add properties. You have to find properties that have some distress on it, whether it's physical distress or what I would call financial distress um, and, and have a way to fix it, right? And, and so that it, it does require more execution to get to that cash flow today. Uh, it takes more execution now than it did before. So it's just, that's where we're at in the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Explain to me like the, the, the property though. So our listeners can understand kind of what you're, you're aiming at. I mean, are we, we aiming at a property that has, you know, 50% occupancy, what kind of. Yeah. So there's, I mean, you know, it, it can be an occupancy issue. Um, or it can be just a tired seller issue. So, you know, a property that you and I purchased together recently, um, the, the seller of it was essentially originally a lender into the property. And the, the person that owned it failed to perform well. And so the lender had to for, basically foreclose on the property, take ownership of it. But imagine, imagine Wells Fargo taking ownership of your home, right? Like they're not in the business of owning homes. And so they wanted out. And they wanted out for a price that was relatively below market, but they didn't care because Wells Fargo didn't want to own the home. It wasn't really Wells Fargo. I'm just using this as an example. And so that was what I would call like a situational distress. It was someone that wanted to own the note on it and they were forced to owning the asset themselves and they wanted just to get out. Yeah, they didn't need top dollar. So we were able to come in and solve that problem for them. And also there's a lot of uh, reputational challenge with the property. So we have to change the reputation of the property by taking care of the tenants, by fulfilling work orders uh, and getting good tenants in there, um, adding security, um, filling it up, uh, improving the units. So those are, those are some things that we're doing on that property together um, that are part of adding value. Um, so, you know, it, again, it doesn't come where you can just buy a property that's kicking out a lot of cash and do nothing. Uh, you know, after closing, you really have to have a plan that's been validated and then be able to execute on the plan over time. And there's a perfect example of a property where, yeah, are we trying to create a lot of, um, a lot of equity? Are, are we trying to increase the value of it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it'll cash flow extremely well, um, especially when all the value adds implemented. And if a recession happens during the hold period, Mm-hmm. prior to uh, a disposition, it'll still cash flow really, really well. Right. And so, like you said, it's, it's really a non-issue if a recession does happen during that time. And that was one of the keys for the, that property is look, look at the cash flow. We like that. We can add value. We like that. It works, right? Right. It works all right. around. So. Yep. You want to buy a property, you'd you like to have your cake and eat it too. A property that has cash flow and has the ability to sort of push the value through improving the cash flow, improving the NOI, improving the rents. Um, so you'd like to have both. But I, I just think, man, you are, you're on thin ice 
if you are just hoping for, you know, inorganic appreciation based upon a frothy market. Yeah. Yeah. You're continuing to hope for 8%, 9%. You're in Seattle. I mean, you guys, you guys have been seeing what, 9%, 8% rent growth for, yeah. for years. I don't know if you're still seeing that, but uh, I know for a while you guys were. Yeah, that's right. And so when you see that, right, like it, it, it's a herd mentality. Everybody starts saying, oh my gosh, I can't not make money and I'll, I'll buy any asset at any price because it's going to go up, you know, it's in, in, essentially you're playing hot potato. Um, Are you so. buying in Seattle? I'm not. I'm not. So I actually had, there's, a, there's basically an outer suburb here where I did own four duplexes. And those have actually done really well. The rents, as you said, have been going up at like 10, 15% a year. And so the value of the properties have been phenomenal, but um, they've been duplexes. And so it just the, the amount of work and time that goes into it versus the value creation, I thought my time was um, better used elsewhere. And so I, I've sold those. And, you know, by the way, um, Seattle, the city council of Seattle just last night passed an ordinance that you may no longer evict non-paying tenants in during winter. the winter months. And so it's, it's, a, it's a tough regulatory environment um, for it and capital go where it's wanted. And, you know, I was just emailing our attorney about an issue in the state of one of our properties. And, the um, you know, the, the rules were just very friendly to landlords. And so I'm like, well, I think I'll put more of our capital there because it's, it's, it seems to be wanted there. And so... Uh, no, short answer is not in Seattle anymore. And here's here's one thing, you, you know, we can talk, we can get political, which I don't want to, but right. um, but one thing I, I'll, I'll say about the regula- regulatory is you, in my opinion, you see it in markets that have massive rent growth. Yeah. Have, so you see, you see it in California. You're seeing it in Seattle. Seattle's had a decade worth of you know, rent growth, that's really unsustainable. And finally they're like, okay, this just is continuing. We have to do something about it. Yeah, that's we're right. going to slam these landlords. And so, and we're starting to see it in Minnesota in, yeah. in Minneapolis. And again, we can get political about it and talk about the blue States and the red States and blah, blah, blah. But one thing you've got to be careful in any market, if you're seeing massive, massive rent growth, no one understand that there is a possibility that you're going to see rent control if you're seeing unsustainable rent growth for, for too long. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and the reality is, of course, all things being equal, I'd rather have large rent growth, but the, 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 uh, the most important thing as an investor is to have time on your side. Cause if you just yeah. have 2%, 3% rent growth, but you have it over a 10, 15 year hold period on an asset, it's just mm-hmm. phenomenal what assets, you know, and then you multiply that rent growth times your, cap rate and yeah, we don't yeah. need to get into too much math just the returns are phenomenal so you don't need to stretch for home runs if you just have time on your side and you manage the asset well we we have we just have good fundamentals in this business which is why you and i like it and you'll do great take me through the kind of that mindset shift i mean you were this corporate guy right you worked for a fortune 500 company you you know, you, you held various jobs and all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, I don't know how it happened. So I want you to take me through that, but then you start buying these rental properties and eventually you quit your job and, and you're doing this real estate thing. So kind of take me through 
I guess maybe that growth period of, and, and also you started buying just small properties, if I'm right, single families yep. and yep. duplexes and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And so now you're buying larger properties. It was an aha moment. And then an aha moment where I basically decided to dump jet fuel on that aha, right? So when my wife and I first got married, we bought a condo down near the University of Minneapolis or University of Minnesota. And we bought it for, gosh, $260,000. And then the Great Recession happened, and um, and we wanted to move out of it to move closer to where she was working. And so the option was either to sell it or to rent it out. And I wasn't like thinking mathematically; it was just those kind of your two binary options. And we were underwater on our mortgage, and so we're like, "Oh, let's just rent it out," not thinking too much about it. But we put a tenant in there, and lo and behold, over the next year or two or three years. A couple of things were happening. The tenant was paying down the mortgage. The tenant was putting a little bit of cash in my pocket and the market was normalizing, right? And so the value of the property was going up because properties were going back up in value over time. And so what I noticed, basically what I noticed was um, I could have sold it at that point in time and written like a $30,000 check at closing into the property to enable it to close and get the mortgage. Yeah. Or... Um, or I could rent it out. And what happened was as I rented it out, the, the, the mortgage went down, yeah. the value went up and I was putting cash in my pocket. And a couple years later, I did in fact sell it. And I like at, the price had gone back up to what we bought it for. And the mortgage had gone down by the like $50,000. So instead of writing a $30,000 check, I, at, when I sold it, I got a $70,000 check to me. So it was a hundred thousand dollar Delta because I didn't do anything. I just like rented it out to a nice tenant who took great care of it. And so that was in a sense, my aha moment. It's like, wow, this is a really cool space. And I said, well, if I, could, if I can do this with one property, what if I could do it with 100? How can I scale this? How can it grow bigger? And then you just kind of pull at that thread. And then it's usually people find that it's pretty hard to scale single family homes. Yeah. Uh, for financing reasons and logistics and management. And, and so then you're like, well, I like this space, but single family homes aren't the answer. What's the answer? And then you usually you move toward apartment buildings or maybe self storage or something along those lines. And, and so that was my story. And there's a lot of nuances in there, but it was, it was that story. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I basically improved my net worth by a hundred thousand dollars by making one decision and then just adding time to the equation. And over time, it's the phenomenal asset to be in. So essentially that's it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And what, so once you transition, once you said, Hey, I'm going to start buying these bigger properties. What was your first big property? Um, it was a 32 unit in uh, St. Paul. Cool. And um, do, you, do you still own it? it? It just sold last month. It just sold last month. Um, but you know, what we did is we, we bought, um, we bought a triplex from a wholesaler, all cash. We put in $20,000 into that property, filled it all up, um, and then we put, we got it appraised and put a mortgage on it and pulled out a whole bunch of cash. Yeah. And with that cash, the, t the timing worked out right, that we just took that cash and put it, put it as a down payment on the 32. Oh, and awesome. so all, all that happened in like three months. And what was amazing, Todd, this is one of those aha moments where you realize, uh, ironically, going bigger can sometimes be easier. 
is that the financing and the work and the logistics for getting for like closing on the 32 <laughs> was less of a headache than getting the financing for the triplex. Yeah. And you're just like, wait, I bought, I just bought a 32 unit. So it's, it's, I literally 10 X the number of units and it was less work. That seemed too good to be true, but it, it was true. And so then you're like, well, this triplex stuff, you know, is not where I should be spending my time. And so that was, that was another aha moment that took me not just into the uh, owning rental property space, but the larger rental property space. I can still remember trying to, I had a property that I bought for, for dirt cheap and didn't stick much money into it. It just didn't need that much work. And it ended up, you know, it was worth about $110,000 uh, at the time, but I didn't want to put that big of a loan on it. Honestly, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to have really good cash flow. So I wanted to put a loan on for about 50 K, which would have still, you know, that was going to bring back about 20 K into my pocket. That's all I was in at. Uh, I couldn't get a loan for 50 K. Nobody wanted to give me a loan for 50 K. What year was this? Uh, This was back in probably 2012. And it, but it wasn't because of that. People were willing to give me a loan for 150 K, 250 K, 500 K, but 50 K they saw as a high risk loan that just wasn't worth their time either. Oh, it was, that was my, I'm like, Whoa, it's easier for me to get a loan on a 20 unit building than it is for a single family house that cash flows, you know, 800 bucks a month, but it's only a $50,000 loan. They don't want to deal with it. Yeah. That's funny. So when did you, when did you kind of stop? When did you make this real estate thing your, your deal? What, what was it? Yeah, so it was it was a side hustle for a while during the Fortune 500 job, and it was cool. Yeah. I got a couple of rental properties, and it was fun. And you know, it's kind of like some guys like fantasy football, and I like this. You know, so I would I would I would geek out on this instead of talking about who the, <laughs> the you know the Oakland Raiders wide receiver is. Yeah. And so I was just scaling it up, and then it got busy, right? Then it got busy, and you're like, okay, it's it's starting to produce a little bit more cash. I can see where this is going. It wasn't enough cash to just live off of at that point in time, but I could see where it was going. And, um, you know, my spouse has an income stream too. So that helped ease the transition. Yeah. But it was, it was too much time to, um, do the W2 job and run the real estate portfolio and live a life with friends and family. So something had to give. And I just made the leap. I just, I just said, I just, the W2 job, I ended that and, and went into this and it took a while to, to, for this to grow. Right. It didn't, I didn't like, honestly, it's the first year or two after I quit, I was working like you know, 15 hours a week. And I was like, I don't know what to do with the other, <laughs> with the other 25 hours. So I spent a lot more time like working out and with friends and family. And then eventually this has grown and it um, does take up a, a lot of time now, but, but um, it was just, it was not enough time to do the regular job and then this Damn. and then still have a life. And so you just had to make a decision and that's the decision I made. You did some multifamily coaching and, and uh, you're around a lot of people you're seeing have success what and you've had your success so between you between others that you're around between others that you mentor what are some let's let's go with three key things you see that takes people from or that, that maybe separates those who have success from those who don't have success good question todd so my, my first thought is persistence and this is something you've heard from people before but it you hear it because it's true so my first ever coaching student 
uh, we went through a year together of coaching and we looked at deals, we put in offers and we got close on some and we never got a deal done together. And then his year ended and we, we stayed in contact over texts and Facebook and I saw what he was up to. And it's probably been about 12 months since we finished together, but he stuck at it. And I just saw the other day that he closed on a 48 unit in Lexington, Kentucky. And so he's on the board. And I, I know based upon his personality and his hunger that he's going to you know, make it work and that this will be the first of many for him. So, and in contrast, I've seen some people not persist, sort of yeah. follow the next shiny object and they get involved in a different industry or a different space or a different course, you know, and, and they bounce around. So, but he stayed focused there. And so I take yeah. persistence. Yeah. That's huge. Um, yeah. Another one for me is um, partnering, right? So the more I'm around this space, the, the more I see almost no one do a deal by themselves. Like not even half the time, like almost never. Um, you, you always end up with someone else who can, who better at finding the deal, better at underwriting the deal, better at raising the capital, uh, enjoys the asset, the post-close asset management more. Uh, and so it's just a team sport, right? It's yeah. like, you can't play football by yourself. And I, this, the more I'm around it, uh, turns out to be that way. And it seems um, to be, you know, it's, it's just more successful too, because it's so hard to be everybody and have your hat on and try to be this person and that person and the other. And if you could just partner with people, find the right people, it just seems like that the success, yeah, you're going, oh man, but I got to give something yeah. up. But yeah, mm-hmm. guess what? Mm-hmm. You, you now are more profitable and you're able to do more deals. Right. It is, I think, you know, um, whatever, 50% of a big deal is much more than 100% of a small deal, 100% of no deal. But I think, you know, starting out and just human nature, you want to have the whole pie for yourself. Yeah. And I think there's something something refined or something that we all go through over time where we just kind of settle and we're like, you know what, I'll, if I do 30% of this deal, I get 20% of the GP, but I'm with five other really smart guys or gals. Like that's a great thing. And also yeah. they keep you accountable. Like if I'm going to go on vacation for a week, I know that you got my back and you'll take the yeah. emails. So, yeah. you know, or, or, or you'll keep me on my toes. If I'm not watching the numbers, you'll say, you'll look over this and say, why, why is this number down? And so yeah. it's, it's, it's preferred. It's how it almost always happens. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And then the third thing is having some geographic focus. Mm-hmm. I know in my own story and in, in, in some of my students, they're like, oh, there's no deals in Sacramento, California. So then they bounce over to Vegas. And then two months later, there's no deals in Vegas. So I'm going to go check out Reno. There's no deals in Reno. It's like, well, there's probably a deal in Reno somewhere. Uh, maybe you got to dig harder. And so having some sort of geographic discipline is is really important too. So we can't we can't know all markets. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that too with, with myself, you know, I, I first started like going, Hey, I'm going to do multifamily real estate. And I decided to, uh, you know, Minnesota wasn't maybe the, the place I was finding any deals. So I went and bounced to all these markets and I'm looking at all these markets, seeing these good deals in Montgomery and in Cleveland and, yeah. and, and Phoenix. And, 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 you know, I wanted to buy them all, but I had to realize that, look, I'm going to buy nothing if I'm going to look at everything. Or you're going to buy them and not execute on them well because you're trying to be in Cincinnati and Birmingham. Yep. Yep. And it's not going to happen. And the the only way to even kind of do that is to partner with the right people. And so that can be a way to successfully be in different markets, but you can't be doing it on your own, especially. 
So let's shift to uh, mistakes you've made. I'm sure you've made one or two. Uh, I just want to know about one. But what I want to know is a mistake that you've made. And more importantly, I want to know what did you learn from it? Uh, yeah, a mistake I made um, was in the, in, recently in about the last 12 months um, was letting earnest money go hard on a deal that wasn't all buttoned up. Mm. So we let, you know, every, what, what's the, the amount of money is a meaningful amount of money that really hurt to lose. And that's different for everyone. But we put a lot of earnest money down. We believed that we had a clear path to closing this deal. We were told that our, our money was waiting for us. And then after the earnest money went hard, our, um, our equity partner basically said, you know what, we don't like that market so much and we're feeling different and we'll get out. We, you know, we're out of here. And on this one deal, we, we were trying to work with one equity partner. So that partner held all the, all the, all the leverage, right? And all your eggs were in that basket. And when they went out, our earnest money went south, not theirs. So there's a lot of, maybe there's two lessons in there. There's probably a lot, but two of them would be, um, think about alignment all the time. Mm -hmm. So when my earnest money is hard, but that guy is bringing the equity to close or not close the deal, that's misalignment. Misalignment, yeah. Right, he should, they should have their earnest money locked up. And if they're the ones that control whether we close. Um, so that was, that, that was a tough lesson. Um, yeah, the other one is, is, is choose your, your partners well. So that partner turned out to be, they, they flaked out, right? And actually the answers they gave were factually wrong. They were saying, well, this market doesn't have growth. This market, the rent comps aren't good. And they, we could just factually show, no, what you're saying is not true. Um, but they, it, I don't know, maybe it was a smoke screen. We never really understood it fully. Um, but what I also learned there on the positive side was the partners that I was working on in the deal um, were good guys, right? Because after the deal went south, that's usually when people start pointing fingers and, you know, it's your fault or you did this wrong or you didn't, you know, tie this down. And we all just kind of took the hit and have continued to work together and build off that difficult experience, but it built some rapport and trust. So so that was, I mean, that was a really tough experience recently. So I, I, I don't need to know the market or anything like that, but have you been able to, like the, the relationship with that broker, <clears throat> you always worry about, you know, if something like that happens, that relationship with that broker is completely gone and gone. Um, is that the case? Or have you been able to salvage your relationship and potentially be able to do business there again? Yeah, it's been wounded. I don't think that we're getting sort of the, 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 the pocket listings that we, we would have otherwise. Mm. Um, I think we tried to be uh, straightforward with regard to, you know, what the situation was and why we weren't able to close it. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a hurt relationship, right? Because the deal was under, under contract for a long time. And so, uh, you know, the emails were like, hey, you guys on track to close? And we said, yeah, we, we believe we're still about to close. And then ultimately when we didn't, everyone goes back to square one. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult relationship. It's a, it's a damaged relationship. Yeah. I, I think communication in that type of situation is really important to, um, you know, recently I had a conversation with, with one of my friends who um, the transaction ended up going through, but there was just no communication on the buyer's part. Um, and that actually damaged the relationship between the broker and 
you know, my, my friend who was the seller and, and uh, you know, a lot of people involved don't want to do business with this other person uh, because there was zero communication. And so you guys communicating and being open and honest and that definitely helps at least. Now, obviously you didn't execute, so you probably damaged the relationship, but still, as long as you're open and communicated, that, that probably helps. There, 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 there's always two things. There's like, listen, as syndicators, there's two things that we can do. Perform well and communicate well. Yep. Right. For your property management, your property manager has two things they can do. They can perform well or communicate well. And the killer is when both of them don't happen. So if we as syndicators are working on a deal and it's not going too well, that's tough. But if we also under communicate, that's a killer. That's a killer. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, we have an inclination to want to not communicate bad information or the tough information, but that's, that's an instinct we all need to be fighting. Yep. Yep. And, and, and telling them on the solutions, like, what are we trying to do? You know, how are we working through this? Uh, and that's really important. So he, you know, understanding that, look, uh, there's tough things happen. Like I've got a property right now that's, that's, you know, we're behind on our performance. We would like to be at one spot and we're down here and I'm trying to be open with the investors and tell them exactly where we're at. I'm still very optimistic about the property. I still think it's going to yeah. perform extremely well, but at the same time, we're not hitting our mark today. And we're just trying to communicate well with them about everything that's going on in the property and, and, where we think we're at and, and where the trend lines are going. And that's, that's really important. That's going to, in my opinion, help me and everybody else out in the end where they're, they're going to go, okay, at least we understand what's going on. We're not pissed off. We're not like wondering, always questioning what's going on. Yeah. So. Yeah. I spoke about alignment before um, uh, with your, with your equity investors and, on a typical syndication, one thing that we like to do is put in our own money. So, yeah. you know, I always tell my investors, listen, um, I put in $50,000 myself or whatever, the, or we as the G have put, GP have put in $100,000 ourselves. So, you know, we are in the same boat as you. And I think that that will, you know, people, people respect that and they understand that. And I always try to, we always try to do that as an organization. It's one of our, you know, um, values. So... Drew, where are you kind of, where are you visioning yourself uh, five, 10 years from now? Where, where do you want to start or continue to move the business? Uh, you know, kind of, what are you looking long-term? Uh, it's a great question. I, we, we try not to get too wrapped up in, in visions that are too far out because yeah. so much happens between now and there. I mean, five years ago, I thought buying three bedroom single family homes was, 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 was the best thing. big hairy stuff. Right. Yeah, so yeah. with that caveat, right. We, we, we do want to go, we want to move toward a, a portfolio of uh, 5,000 units in five years and 10,000 units in 10 years. Um, I think that as we get systematically larger, we can have better systems and better personnel and, uh, and, and, and get a little bit more vertical integration and control of our portfolio as well. Um, it, it really stinks to outsource to third parties critical functions. So what are the most important things and what are things that we can sort of control our own destiny for or something that we talk about a lot? Um, timeline for that stuff is very uh, up in the air, situationally dependent, but it's something that we talk about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's very, very powerful. And something that I really want my listeners to understand is, is what you just said there is, is really trying to, 
bring, you know, you, you guys are talking about bringing things in back into the company that are third party, being able to control that, making sure that you're vertically integrating your company, building systems and processes, and there's timing behind it. You can't just, you can't just create your own property management company with, uh, you know, 200 units. It doesn't make sense, you know, but there, there's time behind it there's timing behind it and if you're working on it right now today mm -hmm. it's going to be easier to make that shift when the timing does make sense to do right so right yeah i uh i was i was speaking to our asset manager recently he, he, he i forget the exact situation but he basically said you know if this if this property manager or this you know on-site manager worked for me i could tell them you know please do x y or z but when i'm their their allegiance their reporting is first and foremost to to their regional within their property management company. And we can sort of, we can sort of pull on a string, but it's more indirect. Yeah. And um, it's tough, right? Cause sometimes you want to make things happen more quickly or follow a system. And so those are things you see over time and you, you just naturally see opportunities to, to, to take control better. Um, yeah. So that's, 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 that's a big thing for us. Yeah, definitely. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, Couple last questions for you before we wrap up. What's a favorite book you can recommend to our listeners? Business, real estate, whatever. Um, gosh, uh, you know, well, the one the one that first gave me the vision was um, the Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary mm -hmm. Keller. Yeah, and I think that was very early on when I had like one or two single family homes, and it just kind of laid out the vision of how people you know, I think it had a lot of biographies or a lot of cutouts with, with actual stories of individuals where someone started with a single family home and then a triplex and then they, they grew the snowball. So that one was, I mean, I read that a long time ago. I haven't picked it up since, you know, maybe a couple of years, but that one, it, it made me go from other people can do this to I can do this. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, last question before we wrap up, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? three pillars of wealth creation. So, um, I mean, I think I, the one key ingredient, I'm not sure if this is, you know, what you're, what you're asking about, but it's time, right? Mm -hmm. There's, if you have time, everything is your friend. If you, if you don't, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Um, I would say another thing is d don't be too greedy, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like a 12% IRR over time will just do wonders for you. Right. Um, we'd like to like to do better, but if you're, you know, I, I know people that try, we were trying to double their money in Bitcoin and this kind of that. And, and to me, it's just like, just playing with fire, you know, and you don't have to, to build wealth over time. Um, and then thirdly, I, I would just say, be cautious about investing in companies or industries where there is uh, creative destruction. Right. Um, so just, in the last 24 hours, I learned that, um, what was it? Uh, um, one of the big leasing sites, like apartments.com, uh, got bought out by um, CoStar, hmm. right? And so I was, I was talking, I was emailing some people about that. And basically the answer is these, these internet listing services built their business model on good Google, Google ads and Google keywords, Right. And then the industry shifted and these things are, people are now getting leads by social media, right? And so creative destruction really 
imploded their business model, right? One of the things that I love personally about apartment building is really hard to imagine uh, technology or some sort of new industry uh, making apartment buildings unnecessary. I've thought about that. Maybe I'm not creative enough, but I can't think of a way that we won't need apartment buildings in the long term. You know, and so unlike investing in General Motors, where Tesla upends them with electric cars or something like that, uh, I just think that we, we have a pretty good chance of always needing apartment buildings. Now, what they'll look like might change a little bit, but fundamentally, it seems like a class that is resistant to other, uh, you know, industries coming in and, and, you know, upsetting our invested dollars. Yeah. So, so invest in sustainable industries. And I think that's very yeah. sound. I mean, if you're looking at it as a long-term, uh, you know, a long-term investment, investing in something that's sustainable, that's something that that's not going to have major disruption could be yeah. extremely valuable. Yeah. I mean, we syndicate on five-year terms, but personally, if, if you and I buy a deal together, my vision is let's hold up for 20, 30 years. If it's a great asset, why, why are we interested in selling? Yeah, selling? Maybe I'm going to refinance it or pull out some cash, but yeah. I love owning these assets for the long, long, long term. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Drew, how can listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, they can reach out to me. My uh, email address is drew at nighthawkequity.com. So nighthawk without a K, so it's N-I-G-H-T, hawk. And uh, would love to just chat and uh, maybe talk about pointers. Um, Be happy to speak with anyone. Awesome, awesome. Well, definitely appreciate it. A ton of value you were able to add to the show. So appreciate that. And you have a fantastic rest of the day. You too. Thanks so much, Todd. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. Hey, definitely appreciate Andrew Niffin for joining us on the show and tons of value he was able to provide us. A couple of things I took from this episode. First of all, one, don't be too greedy, right? Um, there's always that, there's always more deals around. Uh, and we want to be able to share our, our results, our profits. And so don't be too greedy. Uh, next thing is he talks about persistence. And I think uh, he nailed that story with his uh, the student that he had success with. Uh, it was after uh, 12 months worth of coaching. And even after that, just continuing to be persistent, there's finally results. And then the last thing is he talks a lot about asset management and how important it is and how that should be a focus on your business if you're business owner, a real estate investor, asset management is definitely uh, definitely going to be a big focus if you want to be successful. So again, appreciate Andrew joining us. A ton of great value. Go back, rewind it, re-listen, take one thing out of this episode and apply it to your business this week. And look, getting better one day, one step at a time is going to compound us to being amazing, to getting awesome results. I'm Todd Dexarmer. I'm signing out. Make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and and want this. So 
the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com, and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out, and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.